All right, so good morning, everybody. We're into John chapter 5, and I'm going to ask you a question this morning. So how many laws, how many laws does the United States have on its books today? (laughs) Way too many to count, right? Way too many to count. Many laws on the books now are based, I mean, they're based on precedent, logic, common sense. But I'm telling you right now, we know, we all know that there's just some stupid laws that are still on the books, right? I mean, come on. So, in Missouri, I just want to make sure you all know, you can't drive down the highway with an uncaged bear in your car. Okay? It's illegal. It's illegal in Missouri to drive down the highway with an uncaged bear in your car. So now you know. All right, now you know. Public-spirited citizens in Arizona actually saved a donkey from drowning after it fell asleep in an abandoned bathtub. They then passed a law in the hopes of keeping that uh, from ever happening again. Glad they passed that law, right? Um, And some of us, you know, I think this donkey grew up to be the star of the children's book called The Wonky Donkey. Some of us will get that, all right? Um, So in Montana, in Montana, married women cannot fish alone on Sundays. Unmarried women cannot fish alone at any time. I love this one. In Rhode Island, any marriage in which one of the parties is an idiot or a lunatic is null and void. (laughs) Nobody get any ideas here, okay? No, no, all right. Stop looking at your spouses, people. Don't don't think about it, all right? So did you know that the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare, was 2,700 pages long? Who reads that stuff? I mean, I remember when Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi said that the House needs to pass the bill so we could all find out what was in it. I mean, who reads this stuff, right? Okay, but that wasn't the longest bill ever passed by Congress. Trust me, this problem is on both sides of the aisle, okay? At 5,593 pages, the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021 is the longest bill ever passed by Congress. 5,593 pages. I mean, again, who reads this stuff? Nobody can read 5,000, 6,000 pages of dits. I mean, come on, right? Not the common person. I'm not going to read that, right? Not the, not the exceptional person. Nobody's going to read that. I don't even think most legislators read what's in these laws, right? Let alone understand them or understand the ramifications for the country, right? These bills are written by high-paid lobbyists, and that usually doesn't include anyone in Congress, and I would argue that the common person, I would argue that the common person breaks the law every single day without realizing that they do it. And that's one of the reasons why, I mean, let's face it, quite frankly, I think parts of our country are broke. I mean, we, we probably break the law every single day and not realize it. But now, let's face it, though, we are not the only ones. Okay, we are not the only ones. Let's go back to the time of Jesus and before And let's look at that. So God gave the law, the Ten Commandments, to Moses on two stone tablets, right? Ten words for all the people to live by. Now, that is efficiency. (laughs) 
that's efficiency. That can only come from God. The Mosaic law, though, with all of its ceremonial, dietary, and other laws about so many things that directly affected the lives of everyday Jews, numbered, from what I could find, about 613. So every Jew every day had to follow at a minimum of 613 laws. And many times throughout the Gospels, it seemed that the Jews made these laws out to be something that God had never intended, right? God is our creator. He loves creation so much. And he instituted these laws so that our lives would be protected, that we would flourish, and that we would make the most out of our lives while loving and worshiping God all at the same time, okay? Of course, people being people, right, many times we see rules and guidelines as restrictions, bad things, right? Uh, why is this? You know, rather than for our own safety and protection, right? Sometimes too, though, on the other hand, don't we elevate these rules to like God status, right? Obey or you're out, <laughs> you know? The system actually becomes more important than the intentions of the laws or even the law itself. So let's look at this passage in, in John. We're actually starting John chapter 5 this morning. So I would encourage you to take out your Bibles, uh, get your Bible apps. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in, underneath one of the seats in front of you. Um, and actually, I think I did actually print the scripture verses on the insert this morning. So Hopefully I'm not encouraging you not to bring your Bible just so that you can look at the insert. But um, let's go ahead and turn to John. And we're going to start John chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1. Really our text is 1 through 17, but I do want to read 18 because that kind of sets the stage and we're going to talk about that next week more. So John chapter 5 starting in chapter 1. After this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. So I'm going to read 18, but we're going to get into that more next week. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, 
but he was even, even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So let's make a quick note here about the text before we get started, right? Who in here was observant enough to note that in the ESV, which I just read from, uh, verse 4 is missing. It goes 1, 2, 3, and 5. It's also missing in the NIV, and it's also missing in the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. In these versions, it's in the footnotes. And now I also like, there's a new Bible that came out called the Legacy Standard Bible, the LSB, which is really good. And this verse is there, but it's in brackets. Uh, in the King James Version, in the New King James Version, it's in there as well, but without brackets. So why this variation among translations? Where's the verse, right? So very simply, this verse is missing from the oldest and best manuscripts that we have, okay? There are thousands of Greek manuscripts or fragments of Greek manuscripts. So remember the New Testament was written primarily in Greek. There are thousands of these manuscripts around and the way that we arrive at our amazingly very reliable Greek and Hebrew and English translations, versions, is that these texts are compared with all the others in painstaking and complex ways so that when some of these manuscripts have different wording, Right, We can tell almost all the time which is the original. And in the very, very few places where we can't really tell uh, where the original is, there's no historical or doctrinal issues at stake. So that's why this verse is in brackets. So it seems here, though, what happened, someone along the way, a copyist wrote a brief marginal note of explanation into the text, right? Why? Well, verse 7 kind of begs for an explanation, right? It says, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps before me. So it seems like only a few were being healed, or maybe only one when the water was stirred up, right? And if you're too slow, you just missed out. So verse 4 in the King James and the LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible, explains you know, and you can see it in the footnotes and some of the other versions, it says that the invalids were, and here's the missing verse 4, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, that kind of helps make sense out of verse 7, right? Where the man says he can't get into the pool in time to be healed. Now, of course, this explanation may be exactly right, or it may not actually be right at all, right? It might be what the people thought at the time, but since it's missing from the earliest and best manuscripts and has other marks, I'm sorry, <coughs> it has other marks of being added later, um, the more recent Bible versions that omit it so that we have a version that's close to the original as possible. Sorry, something just happened. We have a lot of people out who are sick today with various things like strep and all that. And <coughs> I don't want to get anything. I don't want to give y'all anything. So, so how the pool worked, though, is not essential to the story, right? 
the fact that Jesus worked is essential to the story. So I'm going to make a few points here on the miracle that we should notice here. Um, but I'm actually not going to spend much time on it. The reason that I believe that, uh, so while Jesus had compassion on the, on the lame person who was not named, I think he was using this miracle to set up a confrontation between the Jewish religious leaders and himself, in this case, over the Sabbath. So these confrontations would actually lead the Jewish leaders to conspire to frame Jesus, which would eventually, you know, for breaking all these religious laws, so to speak, and this would actually set up the reason why he was brought before the council to be crucified and executed on the cross. So we're going to spend a little bit of time on the miracle. We're going to spend more time on the Sabbath because I want you all to understand that. So three aspects of the miracle very briefly. The knowledge of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, and the power of Jesus. I'm just going to mention these quickly. So knowledge. So look at verses 5 and 6, right? The lame man had been an invalid for, what, 38 years. Jesus saw him lying there. He knew he'd been there for a long time. Jesus knew this man had been there for 38 years. Jesus does not ever in any of the Gospels just like randomly walk up to someone and heal them, right? Every one of his miracles as recorded in the Gospels has a purpose. Certainly to glorify God, certainly to glorify himself, but also sometimes to instill and confirm faith in people, sometimes to spread the Gospel, right? I mean, look at this. There was no faith displayed by this lame man, none. He was just there, and Jesus actually approached him, actually. Remember last week. If you weren't here, go back and listen to last week. Jesus approached, a couple weeks ago, Jesus approached the woman at Samaria. When he went back, Jesus uh, was in Galilee, and the royal official approached him. In this case, Jesus just walks up and says, you want to be healed? So compassion, so we have knowledge. He'd been there for a long time. Jesus knew that, compassion. Jesus chooses to go to the pool. Jesus chooses to inquire with this one lame man, right? The pool and this man didn't just happen to be where Jesus was going, right? He didn't just pass them by and say, ooh, cool, let's go here, see what I can do, right? This was not just some random event, okay, Jesus, remember, Jesus' mission took him to Samaria. Jesus' mission then took him to Galilee, to the royal official. Now Jesus' mission took him back to Jerusalem. And even when Jesus asked the sick man in verse 6, do you want to be healed? This guy doesn't even say yes. I mean, who would not say yes to this question, right? He gives kind of an excuse. Well, you know. The man says, I'm not, I can't be healed because, you know, I can't get to the pool when it's stirred up. And, you know, when I try, people, stand, you know, trample all over me. I can't get there first. I mean, he thought Jesus was just going to be like, okay, dude, come on. I'm going to put you close to the water, right on the edge. So when something happens, then you can just jump right in. I mean, this guy didn't even know what Jesus was going to do. He didn't even know who Jesus was. He just thought he was some guy passing by. But Jesus asked no more questions. In response to the description of his sorrows, Jesus just acts. He just, bam. What's he do in verse 8? 
get up, take up your bed, and walk. Now remember, this guy had not been walking for 38 years. So it looks like this healing, though, is not in response to anything like religious or faithful in this guy. He shows no faith. He doesn't even know who Jesus is, right? It looks like Jesus healed him simply because of his situation that was so miserable for so long. Jesus had compassion for this man, not in, the, not in, not in any kind of faith or righteousness. Jesus just had compassion for this man and said, bam, get up and walk. So we looked at the knowledge, right? His knowledge of us is complete. His compassion for us is great. Now his power is immediate and sovereign over all. Okay, look at verses 8 and 9. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. My friends, this healing was immediate and complete. Jesus tells him to get up and the man immediately does so. At once the man was healed, right? No magic incantations, no abracadabra, no waving of a magic wand, right? Jesus simply commands the guy to get up and he immediately heal, he's immediately healed and he knows he's healed. And while he hasn't gotten up in 38 years, what's he do? He gets up immediately and he walks away. This man hadn't walked in 38 years. This is how Jesus acts. This is how Jesus heals. He doesn't just heal the physical ailment. He heals all of it, the mental ailment. He now knows miraculously how to get up and walk, and he does so. It's immediate, and it's public, and it's indisputable. Okay? Now, I read last week, I think, about a very, very large church, southern Missouri, where they had a healing power service with a major celebrity faith healer who was present, okay? He supposedly healed a woman who was missing three toes because of an accident. Supposedly, the toes grew back under this faith healer. The problem is there's no proof. Supposedly, the woman had a testimony which she made into a video and posted on Facebook. But the video was removed from Facebook. There's no photos there's no hospital record. There's no public proof. My friends, this is not how Jesus works. This is not how Jesus works, okay? Jesus commanded this man, and he got up, healed, period. Can God heal today? Absolutely, yes, he can heal today. Does God heal today? Absolutely, yes, he does heal today. But when he does, let me tell you something. When he does, you'll know it. <laughs> You will know it. So Jesus heals this lame man who has been invalid for 38 years. He shows supernatural knowledge, compassion, and power. But that's not all of the story. In fact, I believe that Jesus healed this man with another motive in mind. Okay? So the second half of verse 9 is the key to this whole text. Now that day was the Sabbath. Oh, man. Jesus is in trouble. <laughs> He's in trouble now. And I believe that Jesus was being both compassionate to this lame man by healing him, but perhaps even more so setting up a confrontation with the Jews, right? 
the Jews. This is a term that John in his gospel often uses to mean not only the Pharisees who were like the leaders of the Jewish establishment, religious establishment, but this term represented the whole established Jewish religion itself. The system of religion had so warped the teachings of God that they had to be corrected. They had so many minute almost absurd restrictions on what could and could not be done, especially on the Sabbath, that I think they forgot the real meaning of the Sabbath. It became a rigorous list of do's and don'ts to be meticulously obeyed, right? Rather than a day to rest from one's work and a time to worship the living God. The meaning and intent was lost in all of these legalistic efforts that were used to enforce it. Right? I mean, think about this. The Jews hear and witness this wonderful healing, this restoration of a lame man. And all they can think about is this supposed breach in their legal code. Priorities, people. <laughs> Priorities. Jesus here uh, starts here in John 5, I think, to redeem not only human beings. Remember, I mean, Chapters 3, 4, and 5, we see how Jesus meets people, redeems people. For God so loved the world, believe in me, eternal life. But now I think Jesus is not only starting to redeem human beings, but he's also starting to redeem the law itself. And by this I mean that Jesus came not to do away with the moral law. So many people think, oh, Jesus has come, Ten Commandments don't matter, just chunk those. No, sir, no, ma'am, no way. He did not come to do away with the moral law, the Ten Commandments, but to do what it said perfectly and to clarify what it meant. And I'm not going to get into this, but that's what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. You have heard it, you know, you have heard it said, or you've, it is written, but I say, right? He's like, I'm going to clarify what this means because it means a lot more than what you think it means, <laughs> But to show that the, but also though, to clarify what it meant, because the Jews were like so absorbed with these traditions that they had just added on and added on, right? And Jesus wanted to show that these traditions of man, these hundreds of absurd regulations on what could and couldn't be done, were actually undermining the very nature and true intent of the law, and especially in this case, this commandment for the Sabbath. God had commanded a Sabbath for his people, but the Jewish leaders had perverted it by transforming it into a system by which they thought they were earning God's grace by their good works, by what they did, okay? So let me give you a couple of examples. A couple of examples from his commentator, James Montgomery Boyce. If you haven't read anything by James Montgomery Boyce, I would highly recommend it. Easy to read, very good, just he's exceptional. So the difficulty lay in the fact that the leaders of Israel had added man's regulations to God's law, and this had reduced the observance of the Sabbath to the worst forms of legalism. For instance, he writes, the law said that a man could not travel on the Sabbath day, Exodus 16.29. But what is traveling? Asked the scribes. What constitutes a journey? This is how they get, right? You can't travel. Well, what's traveling? What's a journey? In answering this question, they then developed the concept of what's called a Sabbath day's journey, which was roughly a thousand yards. (laughs) So a man, 
could walk that far on the Sabbath, but to walk more than that was a sin. If, however, a rope was tied across the end of the street, then the whole street technically became one house. So a man could walk a thousand yards beyond the rope. (laughs) Okay? Or if he deposited enough food for a meal at any given place on a Friday night, on the next day, Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, he could walk to it, eat his meal, thereby technically establishing that place where he ate as a home, and then walk a thousand more yards. So, I mean, think about this. If some dude was clever enough, I mean, and determined enough, I guess the man could walk all the way across Palestine if he carried some rope and deposited enough food at houses. I mean, he could just do this and keep going and going and going, right? I got to ask you, I mean, I'm sorry, is that the intent of the Sabbath? Come on, right? A text, okay, so... What about carrying a burden? Jeremiah, there's a text in Jeremiah that prohibits the carrying of a burden on the Sabbath day. But what's a burden? What's a burden? Is a handkerchief a burden? Is is carrying a handkerchief a burden? The answer is yes, if it was carried. But no, if it was worn as an article of clothing. So, how do I get a handkerchief from my upstairs wardrobe, you know, whatever, chest of drawers, downstairs? I go upstairs, I take the handkerchief, I tie it around my neck, I walk downstairs, untie it, put it in the wardrobe downstairs. (laughs) Okay, the same logic also works like this. So, a man is out walking. He spits on the ground. Is that work? It depends on what happens to the saliva. If it goes into the dirt and makes a little furrow, right, makes a little hole in the ground, well, that's considered plowing, and it's work, okay? But if it hits a rock, no work is done because it just bounces off the rock. So under this Jewish system, right, being religious on Saturday more or less depended on what direction you spit. Okay? Now, all of these, right, sound really absurd. But that was the state of the Sabbath back in Jesus' time. And since Jesus was God, right, who created the Sabbath, he hated all of this. That's why so many times the Pharisees and Jesus butted heads over the Sabbath. Right? And that's why it's their view of the Sabbath that was actually one of the first instigators of the conflict between the Jews and Jesus that led to his crucifixion. So this morning, let me wrap up the message this morning. Let me make a few observations about the Sabbath and then what I think it means for Christians today. Okay, so one, the Sabbath was made for man. Right? Jesus said in Mark 22, chapter 2, 27 through 28, to the Jewish leaders again, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Did Jesus sin by telling this newly healed man to take up his bed and walk? The Jews thought so, but Jesus didn't think so. Jesus was sinless, remember? So he could not even have encouraged the man to sin. So according to Jesus, healing on the Sabbath was not sinful, neither was picking up his bed and carrying it. Jesus shows us that the rest, as prescribed in the Sabbath, 
did not simply mean idleness. Don't do anything. Sit on the couch. <laughs> do nothing, right? The compassion of God was certainly allowed on this day of rest. In Mark 2, starting with verse 23, Jesus also shows that fulfilling one's need from hunger, for instance, was also okay on the Sabbath. So we can see that compassionate acts of healing and helping, even feeding oneself, meeting one's basic needs, were also acceptable on the Sabbath, right? So the Sabbath was made for man. Now, number two, the Sabbath was made for our physical rest. Exodus 28 says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So from what the Old Testament implies and what so many commentators say is that the Sabbath was given to man by God as a model of what God did in creation, right? God worked six days, he rested on the seventh day. You work six, you rest one. That's the model. And when Exodus here mentions labor and work, right? You will rest from your labor and all that you, and all that you work. This implies what a person does on those six days. These words, work and labor, literally mean your business, your profession, or your occupation. So what's your profession? What do you do for a living? Do that six days, but don't do that on the one day. God made the Sabbath holy, which means set apart, right? So we can, we can and we should work six days, I mean, I think here it's five-day work week, so woo, even better, right? But not on the seventh day. Work six, rest and worship on one. Now, this is actually healthy for human beings, right? I mean, how many studies, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of studies that show that working around the clock seven days a week can take a tremendous strain on your body, your mind, your health, your family, even your job performance. You think, I'm going to work seven days a week. I'm going to get ahead. At some point, your job performance is going to go like this. It's actually going to work against you. So God knew what he was doing when he established the Sabbath, right? Again, remember Mark 2. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, <laughs> I say here I'm not going to get into the Saturday versus Sunday thing, but I am going to say a few words about it because I can't not say something about it, right? I will say that since the early church in the first century, Christians have had a Sabbath on the first day of the week, Sunday. That's why we're meeting here today. John even mentions it at the beginning of Revelation 1.10. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is Sunday. There are several other instances in the New Testament where they mention the Lord's Day, which is Sunday, which is the first day of the week, Right? There are a number of early church fathers, literally within a few years from Jesus, that mentioned the Sabbath and the Lord's Day, and that's what they taught. So Christians moved to worshiping on the Lord's Day 
very, very early on. Some people will tell you, oh, the Catholics changed that thousand years later. It's not true. Okay, that's, people say that, they don't understand. They haven't read the early church fathers, okay? This was done very, very, very early on. And that's why we meet on Sundays. So finally, the Sabbath was made for our spiritual refreshment, okay? I want us to more than, you know, think about more than anything to honor the day and dedicate it to the Lord, right? Romans 14, 5 through 8 is significant, so I'm going to read that. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Okay? So God commanded that we work six days and rest one, and that one day should be set apart, made holy for the Lord, to rest ourselves and to worship the Lord our God. Right? And like I said, Christians since the very, very earliest days of the church, even as taught in the New Testament, have set apart the Lord's day, this day of resurrection, as the Christian Sabbath. But Paul's point is this, and I believe it's also the point that Jesus makes. Set apart all days and all that you do for the Lord. Every single thing that we do, whether we work, play, go to school, raise our family, whatever we do, do it for the Lord. Okay, but if you set apart one day for the Lord, be it Sunday or another day, I have a friend, he sets apart Saturday because he firmly believes Saturday is still the Sabbath day. More power to him, right? More power to him. But whatever day you set apart, then actually set it apart for the Lord, okay? Do it with good conscience. Rest, worship, do things that don't include your profession or normal job, right? But also don't do things that would seem to be ungodly or perhaps put you in a position that might seem ungodly, okay? This day set apart for God, treat it as such. Now, I'm going to close here. Very few Christians today keep the Lord's Day holy as we ought to do. And I think this is likely one of the reasons for our spiritual weakness in this country today. God says that his Sabbath brings great blessings to those who keep it. And I sometimes hear from like, you know, mothers who have small children or professionals, up-and-coming professionals with highly demanding jobs, you know, that their daily obligations just that it just makes it hard to spend time in God's Word. I have to check email on Sunday or Monday is going to be crazy, right? Or, you know, I'm an international company and my Sunday is, some, is Koreans Monday. Okay, so I got to check my email on Sunday. Friends, I'm sorry. <laughs> don't. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you, don't, Okay. One way to compensate for this is to set aside the Lord's Day for devotional refreshment. I mean, Sabbath-keeping is God's primary devotional plan for his people. I think most of y'all know that I really love to read the English Puritans, okay? They get a bad rap, but they are just 
godly, fantastic people, and their writings are fabulous. Most of them had very, very little time for leisure in their society, but they called the Sabbath the market day of the soul. You know, however heavy were the worldly demands of the other six days, they devoted the Lord's day to God, and he made them strong because of it. Now, this might require rearranging our priorities. Great. That's what God wants us to do. (laughs) So we are not to make the Sabbath a day of drudgery, right, but of spiritual joy as we devote ourselves wholly to God. All right, let us keep the Sabbath not in a vain attempt to earn God's favor by all these do's and don'ts, okay, but to enjoy fully the favor we already have in God's grace and to give him the full glory of our grateful lives. Let our Sabbath not focus on this list of do's and don'ts, okay, and let us not stand in judgment of one another for differences in maturity or understanding or opinion when it comes to Sabbath day observance. Like I said, my friend can have spirited debates on whether it's Saturday or Sunday, but in the end, we're both brothers in Christ. But rather, let us lovingly help one another do all things for the glory of God. All right, let's pray.